Welcome to the Empire Files podcast. This is Abby Martin. This is the audio version of each episode of the Empire Files hosted on Telesaur English. You can watch every episode at theempirefiles.tv. Israel's massive expansion of illegal settlements built on stolen land and demolished Palestinian homes is advanced by extreme violence from both the state forces and the settlers. But the attacks on innocent Palestinians by Israeli settlers goes far beyond fists and rocks. Among the most shocking is a 2015 arson attack in the small village of Duma, which took the lives of Reham Dawabsha, her husband Saeed, and their one-year-old baby boy, Ali. The only survivor, seven-year-old Ahmed, who teetered on the edge of death for weeks, with burns over 70% of his body. A group of extremists from a settlement nearby who conduct regular attacks on Duma, came into the village late at night. They firebombed the home, with the family asleep inside. According to witnesses, Saeed and Reham fled from the home and collapsed outside, engulfed in flames. The settlers then stood over their bodies and doused them with kerosene as they burned alive. The settlers spray-painted, Long live the Messiah King, on the charred home. The infant baby, Ali, was dead at the scene. The rest of the family survived the initial attack, horrifically burned. Syed Dawapsha went next, after clinging to life for a week. He was only 32 years old. Reham went last. She managed to survive for over a month in the hospital. She died on her 26th birthday, September 6th. On the very same day a year later, I interviewed her father and caretaker of Ahmed, the lone survivor of the brutal attack. At approximately 2.15 a.m., I got to the roof of my house where I saw the smoke and fire blazing from my daughter's house. I headed towards the house there. When I arrived at the house, I found that they took the mother, the father, and Ali. Ahmed was with them, three of them without Ali. I asked about Ali. They told me they couldn't get him out. He was still inside the house, inside the fire. I took a car and headed to Rafadia Hospital. Ahmed got there before his mother and father. When I arrived, the mother and father were already there. When I saw the scene, my body got the chills. When I saw the flesh and the burned meat, they were totally burned. Their flesh was dripping on the ground. I heard Reham saying, I want water, I want water. And Saeed was saying, let me sleep, let me sleep. Ahmed and his mother went into surgery about the same time, one hour apart. The skin grafting operation worked for Ahmed. He had some skin left. But for Reham, she did not have any skin to take from. Ahmed's surgery went well, but hers, it was very bad. Ahmed underwent 15 operations. And the same day that Reham died, she became a martyr. It was about 12.10 a.m. when I went to her. I stayed with her one hour. After that, they had to take her to the mortuary. Then I went back to Ahmed. The nurses there told me that Ahmed needed me. Tears filled my eyes. Ahmed saw me and asked me why I was crying. I told him that I wasn't, that some dirt had gotten in my eye. He told me he would remove the dirt from my eyes. I said, no, I will go to the bathroom, wash my face, and come back. I came back to Ahmed and stayed with him until 6 to 7 a.m. I was awake and joking with him. I didn't want Ahmed to get a relapse and regress and wanted him to move forward. 
although I had lost the most precious piece of me, which was my daughter, the mother of Ahmed. I stayed with Ahmed for a whole year at the hospital, 24 hours a day. I wouldn't leave him. To him I became his mother, father, brother, and uncle. Everything in his life. Ahmed wouldn't do anything without my help. We had some court appearances while we were at the hospital. I told him that I would be going to the courthouse. He told me, don't go, so they won't do to you the same as they did to my mother and father, beating them. I don't want them to beat you also. He was very worried and afraid. Then Ahmed began longing for heaven, thinking a lot about heaven. He wants to go to heaven. He asked a lot about heaven. He started repeating, I want to go to my mother. He asked a lot about his mother. At present, he speaks less than before. He is not very talkative. He asked me later, when I looked at Ahmed, I feel that his eyes are asking me. He asks me, where is my mother? Where is my father? When I do anything for Ahmed, he loves me more and starts kissing me. He tells me I am more precious than himself. He says he loves me more than he loves himself. Despite many witnesses and Israeli forces knowing full well who the attackers were, they made no arrests in the terrorist attack. Instead, they issued a gag order, making it illegal for any media to report on the incident. The press embargo lasted months. But the attack became a major public scandal, and the Israeli state was pressured to file charges after more than five months. Of the 17 they initially arrested in connection with the attack, only two were charged by the Israeli government. Outrageously, just one of them, Amiram Ben-Ulil, was charged with murder. The other was charged as an accessory and barred from being held in prison because, according to the court, was too young and the experience would be too stressful for him. He was 17 years old. They even released, without charges, Mir Edinger, considered a leader of the terrorist movement and the Dewapsha murders, well known for advocating and even giving detailed instructions for arson attacks on sleeping Palestinian families. Ben Ulil is still awaiting trial, always in good spirits, because he knows the system is tilted far in his favor. Endless legal delays keep him safe at home. The nightmare for this family is not over. The very same people who took part in this attack still terrorize the village, and Ahmed in particular. Supporters of the attack often demonstrate outside the court proceedings, celebrating the murderers as heroes. They hold up three fingers, one for every person who died in the attack. But they also hold rallies at the entrance to Duma itself, taunting Ahmed and his grandfather, promising to come back and finish the job. Months after the attack, video surfaced of a settler wedding in Jerusalem, where attendees brandished rifles, knives, and even Molotov cocktails, cheering the murder of the Dewapsha family. They held a large picture of the infant Ali Dewapsha and stabbed it with a knife as they danced. Ahmed's grandfather showed me the few safety measures they can take, cages on the windows of Ahmed's room, so another firebomb can't be thrown inside. But they have no other form of self-defense. They're not allowed to have weapons, and the Israeli military is notorious for turning a blind eye to settler attacks. He described the utter terror of living under the shadow of these settlers, the people who killed his daughter, his son-in-law, and his infant grandson, boldly vowing to attack them again. After the operation, they said that there will be Duma 1, Duma 2, Duma 3, and Duma 4, 
on Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp. They are threatening us. They are saying, Ahmed should not be living still. He will be a terrorist like his father and mother. We must get rid of him. They claim that Riham, who was a school teacher raising kids, they claim that she is a terrorist. Saeed, who is a construction worker, they claim that he is a terrorist. And Ali, who is one and a half years old, they said that he was a terrorist. The settlers are saying that Ahmed will be a terrorist just like his mom and dad. As soon as they come, they start saying that we are terrorists, we are killers, and we must die. They say, you should not have land here, as if they become the owners of our land. When they come, they start by asking, where is Ahmed's brother Ali? Where is Riham? Where is Saeed? They say, Ahmed should die and follow his parents. They start raising three fingers, meaning that we killed three of you. We are proud and don't care. In fact, they're not scared because the government is on their side. The government is protecting them. The government is providing them with all kinds of weapons and guns, as if it is telling them, go ahead, do whatever you want to do. The government is giving them authority to kill. Ahmed has many more skin grafting surgeries to go, already with the challenge of surviving such a traumatic event. And with the killers of his mother, father, and brother primed to attack, it's a struggle for everyone around him to live a normal life. The Israeli government has sought to explain away this case as simply an isolated incident, but nothing could be further from the truth. According to the Arab League, there were over 11,000 settler attacks on Palestinians in the West Bank in 2015 alone. It is a very rare occurrence for charges to be filed on the attackers. The Israeli military, courts, and politicians simply give aid, cover, and protection to the spearhead of Israeli expansion. They're extremist settlers. This kind of harassment and settler terror against Palestinians is not just happening in rural villages. It's institutionalized in some of its biggest cities. I'm in Hebron, the largest remaining Palestinian city. In 1968, Israeli settlers occupied a hotel here and never left, beginning the colonial settlement. Today, a couple hundred of the most ideologically extreme Zionists have staked claim to the heart of the old city. Although their numbers are relatively small compared to the hundreds of thousands of Palestinians surrounding them, the settlers here are protected by looming guard towers, militarized checkpoints, and about 1,500 Israeli soldiers in one of the most emblematic examples of Israeli apartheid. Hebron, one of the oldest cities in the world, is divided into two parts, known as H1 and H2. H2 is completely under Israeli military control. About 120,000 Palestinians live in H1. About 35,000 Palestinians and 700 Israeli settlers live in H2. You cannot travel freely between the areas. Here, in one of the main commercial and historical cities in all of Palestine, the same practice of kicking the residents out of their homes for Israeli settlers rages on. Again, this growing settlement and military occupation is illegal under international law. Still a major commercial hub, the old city of Hebron's windy streets are bustling with vendors and packed with shops. But as we walked through the old bazaars, the architecture of oppression was palpable. Above our heads, throughout the entire area, are steel cages to block the trash that's constantly thrown from the settlers who live above the Palestinian stores and homes. Everything from rotted food to dirty diapers littered the top of the cage and lay in piles between the barricades of barbed wire. Dystopian guard towers loom over the caged neighborhood. Everywhere you go, you're being watched by an Israeli soldier. Any Palestinian going about their daily life is subject to constant harassment and indiscriminate violence. 
I spoke with resident and shop owner Eid Sadir about his experience living here. I'm living in an area surrounded by four settlements. One from here, another from there, and one from there. Of course, all the time we feel that the settlers are killing us. If I start with my life, my life was subjected to danger. This area was subjected to military incursion and was closed as a military zone. There is no food in the house. It was a difficult life. I went to look for and buy food and stuff like that from the nearest stores. A soldier who was on duty saw me. Then he shot me. The bullet went close to my heart. Of course, the bullet is still in there now. It was not removed. I stayed three months in the intensive care unit. I was treated and returned back home. After a period of time, my wife used to go to the roof to check for water in the water tanks. A settler in the back of my home shot her. Shot her directly in the head. Shot her with five bullets. She was a martyr on the spot. She was dead, but she was pregnant. When she went to the hospital, the baby was not dead yet. The doctor pulled him out alive. We went home. We comforted ourselves with the baby, who we got in place of his mother. I stayed single for a period of time, as I was so sad and desperate. After a short time, my son was going to the shop to get some sweets and things like that. A settler saw him and threw incendiary material at him. He lost his sight, so we sent him to Jordan to treat him. He overcame a number of surgeries. Now he can see a little bit with his eye. We are still treating him. The other issue is Israeli holidays and festivals, like Sukkot, or Feast of Booth, and Hanukkah. The settlers drink alcohol and other drinks, and they throw bottles at us. My niece was three years old when they threw a soiled object on her. Her face was badly injured. Her eye remained closed for more than two months. As you can see, our stores are closed. The houses and windows remain closed. We don't have any openings to breathe. All our life is, in fact, difficult. Residents here must endure a series of dehumanizing checkpoints to simply navigate through town. Many people who live between areas have to use these checkpoints to go to school or work, which can hold them up for hours. The Empire Files obtained hidden camera footage of one of the main city gates. I met with Muhannad Kafisha, a guide to Hebron's old city, who explained how the apartheid system in Hebron has impacted his community. Uh, it takes somebody, for example, three hours just to enter the, the checkpoint because so many people go there to enter. And also, like, in, in, inside of the room to be checked and then uh, check your ID and your number, it takes at least from 20 to 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. And you can have a guess or, like, you can see, like, if you have... 
20 people who want to enter. Number 20 is going to wait for maybe six hours just to enter to his house. And you were talking about building materials, how it could take up to 15 years to even fix your home. Yeah, if you need to do anything inside of that area, if you want to bring uh, forks or spoons or anything to your house, you will need to get a permission, especially if you want to, re to fix your house or to rebuild your house. Palestinians are not allowed to build. If you want to fix your kitchen, you will need to ask a, for a permission from the Israeli civil administration. And I know a family who wanted to, to fix their kitchen. It took them 15 years to get the permission. It was from 2000, they took it at 2015, they started working at 2015. They stopped them after a few, a few, few days of working there and they told them you're not allowed to work, even if they had a permission. The complete lockdown of Hebron was dramatically increased, not in response to attacks by Palestinians, but in response to an attack on Palestinians. In 1994, an Israeli-American-born settler massacred 29 Muslims praying in the Ibrahimi Mosque in the heart of the old city. As a result, Israeli authorities collectively punished Palestinians, restricting their freedoms even further in the name of security. When the massacre happened in the Ibrahimi Mosque, when 29 Palestinians were killed, more than 170 Palestinians were injured by a and the massacre was committed by an Israeli extreme settler who was originally from Brooklyn. After the massacre, as Palestinians, as victims, we were punished for this. And uh, we were like punished for something that we didn't do, for something happened to us. So they closed the mosque, they closed the area, they closed 1,800 shops, they closed the street, the main street in Hebron, all the markets. Everything used to be active in the area, they closed it, just to occupy the area. When they wanted to do anything, they say for security reasons. For example, when, they, when the massacre happened and when they closed the whole of the area, they said for security reasons, because Palestinians might revenge. So they just stopped, they just said, said that and they closed the whole of the area. And when the military say for security reasons, nobody can negotiate or talk about it. Even when they kill somebody, they say for security reasons. But what is the definition of security reason in their view? You don't know. When the city was divided, its population was torn apart. The 700 or so settlers living in the area that they seized from Palestinians turned a once buzzing cultural hive into the ghost town you see today. The main commercial thoroughfare was barred from Palestinian use. And since 1994, nearly half the shops in H2 have gone out of business. The economy in H2 is decimated, with 75% of residents living below the poverty line. The Palestinian population continues to decline. The area was so empty that the only people I saw were groups of soldiers. Now, now, now in Shahada Street, there is still maybe 10 families living there. Uh, it, there used to be maybe 100 or 150 families living inside, inside the street. Uh, most of people left their houses because of the curfew, because of the difficult situation. After 1994, they said we will come back, but when they came back to their houses, they found their houses are taken. So now when people want to go out of their houses, inside of H2 areas or in Shahada Street, they don't go all. They keep somebody in the house to protect the house, because the settlers will come, take it, put military watching tower on the top of it, and they just will control it easily. And if they, if you complain, they will just go to their court, which is Israeli court, and then they decide the house belongs to the settlers. And if someone needs medical attention from within that compound, what happens? If you call an ambulance, if you live in H2, you won't get an ambulance because ambulances are not allowed to enter there. Even you're not allowed to have visitors. So you have to, you have to carry the body of this person out of this, outside the checkpoint and then take this person to the hospital. And, and there's one Palestinian in, in, in November or in December, he, was, he died. Uh, he had a heart attack because the ambulance couldn't reach his house. 
because the soldiers refused to let the ambulance in H2 area. He just passed away. The, I saw the ambulance coming to take him, and I went to the soldiers talking to them in Hebrew, asking them to open the gate. And the, so one of the soldiers was smiling, and he said, no. I told him, can you just call your commander? And he said, no. I know two people passed away because of uh, this. But me, people were killed. Uh, recently, like four of my friends were killed by the Israeli soldiers' guns. This one is called Baruch Marzal, and he's a lawmaker in Israel, and he was in the Israeli elections twice, in the parliament elections. He lost it twice. So when somebody gets killed, I mean, Palestinian, by the soldiers or the settlers, they, they bring pizza, they bring sweets, juice, and they start giving, they start giving food to all the settlers and sweets, celebrating the death of this Palestinian. And that is not a rare occurrence. According to Human Rights Watch, Israeli soldiers often kill civilians by firing randomly into their neighborhoods. But sometimes the killing is much more direct. I'm standing where Abdel Fattah al-Sharif was executed on video while laying on the ground wounded. The family who filmed it, who live right behind me, told me they've gotten regular death threats from soldiers and settlers ever since. As seen in the video, Abdul was summarily executed as he lay dying by Israeli soldier Elor Azaria. He was on the ground wounded a full three minutes before Azaria decided to casually walk back to him and shoot him in the head. Because of the viral video of the incident, the Israeli government was pressured to put him on house arrest awaiting a trial. Israelis condemn this modicum of punishment. Today, he is widely considered a hero in Israeli society. Mass rallies are held in support of him across Israel. Look, Elor, the Jewish people support you. The Jewish people are with you. We will win and we will fuck the Arabs. Ole, ole. A Jew is a soul, an Arab is the son of a whore. Ole, ole. When I visited the occupied area of Hebron, I was immediately confronted by settler children who were hanging out with the soldiers just steps away from where the murder took place. I think that this land is ours. I have no problem with you publicizing this. This land is ours. That's it. What do you What do you guys think of Elor Azaria? Elor Azaria, good man. Good man. Yeah. You think it's good? It's a good thing to shoot an Arab in the head. Yeah. Do you want to shoot an Arab in the head? Yeah. The execution by Elor Azaria is only known about because it was caught on film. Shooting Palestinians to death is commonplace. In 2015, over 115 Palestinians were shot and killed by Israeli forces in the West Bank. Over 75 Palestinians have met that same fate in 2016. From the rural countryside in Duma to the urban center of Hebron, this act of taking over Palestinian homes for illegal settlements is part of the same Israeli state project of ethnically cleansing and seizing all of the land. It's a path that has marched forward for the past century. The Israeli government is not just turning a blind eye to the worst kinds of violence against Palestinians living under the shadow of settlers. They are actively supporting the illegal expansion. 
despite fake condemnations by the U.S. government. This situation is only possible with the vast financial and military support from the U.S. Empire. Every rifle, every home demolition, every innocent life taken is paid for by the U.S. taxpayer. As Palestinians defend their right to exist against increasing Israeli extremism, both from the government and settlers, the people of the U.S. must demand that these crimes are not done in their name. Thank you for listening to the Empire Files podcast. If you want to subscribe to our mailing list, please sign up at theempirefiles.tv. We want this show to be a resource for those fighting against empire both here and abroad. Let us know what you think on social media. You can find us on Twitter at Empire Files and Facebook at The Empire Files.